At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. This Christmas season, we invite you to look deeper into the incredible covenants God made with His people in Scripture. Tune into our current series, Gift Wrapped, From Longing to Lavish, to discover God's unwavering promises to meet the ultimate longings of our heart and ultimately renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. Let me read for us from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1-17. through 17. Now when the king had lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And in accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, would you show us again how great your grace and mercy is? Would you help us to see the tremendous depths of your love for us in Christ? Will you open our ears, ready our hearts, and help us to receive from your word your love today? And Lord, I pray that you would work here powerfully among us, that your spirit would change us and form us and shape us. Help me in my preaching today, Father, to magnify you. Give us your grace. May your power be upon us. And give me freedom, I pray in Jesus' name. Help us now, we ask. Amen. Well, this is the season where finding a gift and, and gift shopping purchasing, you know, doing the Christmas shopping uh, can be really uh, a big trial for many of us. 
it's, it's hard sometimes to know exactly what to get uh, for, for the people that we love. How do we, how do we find the perfect gift, the right gift, the best gift? And it becomes exceptionally complicated when we, when we envision it this way, when the equation goes something like this. How do you get a gift for someone who has everything? What, what do you provide for them? What do, you, what do you bring to the table to them on Christmas Day when, when you look around and you go, well, there's not really much they need or, or want? I mean, they just kind of have it all. Like, what do you do with that person? What do you do in giving a gift? And I think so much of the trial is there before us because oftentimes we wrestle with what to give someone else because we're not thinking about the other person so much as we are thinking about ourselves, we, we've turned it around and we've built uh, what I would call a, a system of being paid back in our giving. Here's the way it works. We give or we find gifts for other people. We, we go out shopping. We look for those gifts knowing and hoping that they will in some way return to us the value or the, the emotion of the gift that we give. We, we play a little back and forth in, in our gift giving. And when we do that, we... We do that because we don't want to feel like they owe us something. Or maybe the other way is we don't owe them. I mean, maybe you've had that experience where someone has given you just a tremendous gift. It's just kind of over the top huge and they've blown your mind. And, you, and you've gone, how in the world can I repay them for that gift? You, you don't like it. I mean, you like the gift for sure, but you really don't like it because you're sitting there in the back of your mind going, now we're not even. Now I, now I owe them, and I've got to come up with a gift that's just as good as the one that they gave me. I've got to settle the books, as it were, balance everything. I've got to have some, some equality here. Now, this is especially true for Christians today, for, for the people of God, and, and for those who are not followers of Jesus, when we think about God and his gifts towards us. We, we believe the, the truths of the scripture that God has paid the greatest payment for us. He has given us the greatest gift for us in Jesus Christ who came and suffered for our sins and laid down his life. And, and we long, we're glad to receive that, but yet at the same time, it, it kind of bothers us because now things aren't equal. Now, now we have a great giver who is given a huge, tremendous gift and, and somehow we owe him. And, and in the equation of that, we're trying to figure out how do we pay God back? How do we settle the books? How do we make sure that there's, that there's balance in that way? Well, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, we're in this series called Gift Wrapped. And we've been looking at the, uh, what, what some have called the, the backbone of the Bible story, the major covenants where God has given gifts. He has made precious and great promises to his people. And this gift giving, if you will, always points itself to Christ. God, in giving these promises to uh, the ancients of old, to the, the forefathers of our faith, in giving these gifts has given them in a way to set up the greatest gift, the giving of Christ. And each one of these gifts that God has given, each one of these promises that he's made, reveal themselves in how they meet our deepest longings. God lavishes us with his kindness and mercy all in Christ, and he meets the deepest core needs of our hearts. So we saw at the beginning of Advent, God giving a covenant and making a covenant with Noah and all creation and God there saying, here's my promise for you to be patient, to put away my warrior bow and to be patient with you. Never flood the earth again so that you would repent and come home and come back to me. 
And then with Abraham, God made a covenant. He cut a covenant with Abraham, and he told Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make your name great in all the earth. I'm going to give you children, more children than the stars in the sky. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you a bright future and a hope. And Abraham, through you, you will be a blessing to all the nations. God meets our deepest longing for a hope and a future in the covenant that he made with Abraham. And then God made another covenant. You fast forward the Bible story to Moses and the people of Israel as they've come out of Egypt. God has rescued them and delivered them by his grace and brought them to Mount Sinai. And they're in the middle of the wilderness where they have no more identity. They're not slaves in Egypt anymore. God meets the longing of their heart for an identity and he bestows his name upon them. He makes them and calls them his treasured people, his holy nation, his royal priesthood. And that's how God has identified us as the church in Christ today. And so God meets the longing of our heart for identity and his promises to us in his word. But then we come to this next covenant. We have to fast forward the biblical story just a little bit. So let me help you catch from where we were at the mountain up to where we are today. You see, God did bring Israel into the promised land. He did walk them through the wilderness. And although it took some time and there was a much sin and rebellion, God was faithful to his word and he brought them into the promised land. And then through Joshua, they were able to conquer the promised land and establish and settle themselves there. And yet, Israel's history wasn't just a, a history of people worshiping God and living under his name. They really didn't do it well. And so the book of Judges tells us the story. It's kind of the story of wash, rinse, repeat, recycle all over again, where Israel, they forget God and his grace and their, his goodness to them. They fall into sin. God brings the nations around them, oftentimes in the form of the Philistines, to, to correct them and to shape them and to bring them back to repentance. And so they cry out to God again, and God delivers and gives them a judge who delivers them from the uh, oppressing uh, nations and enemies, and they return back to God. And then a little while later, they forget God and they do it all over again. And that's the story of the book of Judges. It gets to the point where we saw in the video this morning where Israel gets kind of tired with Judges and they say, hey, all the nations around us, they have kings and those guys seem to be really cool. We'd like one too. Uh, in fact, we're going to have a king. And Samuel, the prophet, he's frustrated that they asked that, but God says, no, we're going to give him a king. They want it. It's just going to show how hard their hearts are. And so Saul becomes a king. Saul's heart is not towards the Lord. His heart is only towards himself. And in that movement, God makes a transition. He says, no, now I'm going to give you a king after my own heart. David is anointed king. David is established as king. There's much that happens in this. And we come here now to 2 Samuel 7, where David is king over Israel. Saul is gone and off the picture. There seems to be rest. And if you're David in this moment, you're probably wondering, what do I do to, to pay back God? Look at the grace and the gifts he's given me. What do I do to, to recognize and to, to make things even? And, and here's where we see God bestow another covenant, another blessing, another gift on David and for us as well. But it helps us see fundamentally how we are to approach God. Oftentimes we think that because God has shown us his grace, we owe him. We've got to pay him back. But I want to help you see this morning that you cannot serve God. You cannot serve God, but you can be served by God. 
the way that we are as his people to live and to, to walk and to worship him before him in all things is not with the posture of trying to pay back God for what he has done for us, but with the posture of children receiving his good gifts to us. Now, I know some of you are biblically astute, and so you've heard me say this morning, you cannot serve God, and you are smart, and you would raise up your Bible and say, but Jeremy, the Bible says, serve the Lord with gladness. So you're wrong, right? Well, no, I'm not wrong, but I want to talk to you about what it means to serve the Lord in the right way, because many of us think about serving God as if to earn something from him. The way the Bible talks about serving the Lord is an act of worship. As children seek to honor their parents and as they seek to, uh, to, to give thanks to the one who gives to them, so we should serve the Lord in that way. It's our, it's our worship before him. But serving the Lord in order to pay him back as if we can is not the way that God would have us serve him. There is a right way to serve God, but we cannot serve God in order to pay him back or to get out of his debt or to balance the books as it were. You cannot serve God in that way, but God would have you see yourself as a child and be served by him. It's that reality that I want to build this message on. I want to help you see what it means to live in light of the fact that you and I cannot serve God, but, but we can be served by him. And maybe that will create for us a new posture of worship and devotion and love towards him. So I want to point us to three realities this morning that help us and to demonstrate to us how we can't serve God, but we can be served by him. The first reality that we need to see is that God doesn't need our work for his glory. Maybe the the more simple way to put it is that God doesn't need you to glorify him. He doesn't need our work. He doesn't need our work for his glory. When we have this posture in our mind that we need to serve or repay God with what we do so that we'll balance the books or so that we'll make things even as a wrong posture that it is, we need to see that our work, our service doesn't enhance or doesn't add anything to God. Nothing is added to God, to his nature, to his power, to his glory, to his brilliance by our work or service for his name. You can't do anything that would make God more glorious in all the universe. In fact, it's a prideful posture of heart to think that by our doing for the Lord, somehow we're adding to him. Somehow we're making him better. This is, this is the, the problem that David sees. The posture that we might have is that by doing something for God, he'll be obligated to return the favor for us. And, and maybe that's a problem that David steps into. He's safe now. At this point in his reign, there's peace. The kingdom is settled In fact, verse 1 says, the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. It's kind of like he can sit on the luxury recliner at home and go, it's all good. It's there. But David recognizes he wants to do something for God. He He sees a problem between his status and what he perceives God's status to be among the nation. So he calls in Nathan the prophet, verse 2. The king said to Nathan the prophet, he says, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar. The ark of God dwells in a tent. David realizes the problem. He's like, my house is is luxurious. It's beautiful. We've got cedar cedar paneled walls, which tells me that this is probably a product of the 1970s in the kingdom there. You know, got the real update style. David's like, it's luxurious. It's nice. It's glorious. He says, but I look out the window and I see the tabernacle and it's a tent. This, This canvas tent is out there And that's God's house? 
Like, I'm, I'm well set. I'm, I'm good. I'm at rest. And God's presence is there in just a, a flappy canvas tent in the wind. Now, I think that David's motives might have been right in that. And he's asking Nathan, and he's sharing with the prophet his heart there. And Nathan affirms that and says to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But in, in many ways, David may have been missing the mark. He may have been thinking about things the way the kings around him would think about these things. Scholars have revealed that many ancient Near East kings would, would actually create a system of quid pro quo with their regional deity to get their blessing. Tim Chester writes, he says, there are many examples of this in the ancient Near East by kings paying for the blessing of their deity through the construction of a temple in some sort of contract. The contract went like, I'll build you a magnificent temple. You'll enable me to live long, prosper, and defeat my enemies. But these kinds of contracts, these kinds of relationships are not how it works with God. He doesn't operate that way. And so for any attempt in David's mind to, to pay back God or to, to somehow get God's blessing by building him a temple or a monument to him, he misses it. God says to Nathan, that's the very case. In verse 4, God comes to Nathan that very night with a vision and a word. And he says, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you going to build me a house to dwell in? The answer there is no. <laughs> Would you build me a house to dwell in? I haven't lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God is saying to David, David, look here. Since, since day one of the Exodus, since you guys walked out of Egypt, I haven't needed anything from you. I, I have, I've been, I, I constructed or I declared to Moses to build this tabernacle for me. That's where my, my presence has been seen and experienced. That's what it is. It's fine. And furthermore, I haven't asked for anybody to build a temple. So any thought that you're trying to, to pay me off or, or for me to balance out things with you, it just, it just misses the mark. David, I'm not asking for this. I haven't commanded this. I'm God. I'm glorious in who I am is what he would say. Think about it this way. Think about your family going on a great big vacation to Disney World. And, and the family, I mean, they go and, and dad, through his work, he pays for the whole thing. I mean, and it's an all-expense, luxurious Disney vacation. You stay at the best resort. You get the fast passes through all, to the, all of the rides. I mean, you, you just do it up the best you can. And after that week-long trip to Disney, after sparing no expense and having such a great time. The 10-year-old in the family comes up to the, to the father and says, hey, dad, that, that trip was so incredible. It, it was so great. Thank you. Um, but I'm going to go get a job now just so I can pay you back for my share of, of the vacation. I, I just want to make sure that we're, we're even on all of that. And what, what kind of message would that send to the father who's, who's done this great vacation and provided this great gift for his family? It, it would be an insult. Ten-year-old child can't add anything to the experience of the gift that's been given to the family. Who are we to think that we can, by our work, by our service to God, that we can add anything to his glory and to his name? 
Let me make it abundantly clear to us what God makes clear to David. He, God, is not dependent on our works to glorify or to magnify his name. Let me say it this way. God doesn't need us. And I know that's humbling. It's humbling to hear that. It maybe causes a little bit of a crisis in your mind. Say, no, God doesn't, God doesn't need me. He doesn't need my service. God isn't up in heaven wringing his hands saying, oh, if they would only glorify and worship me, then I would be powerful and great and, and so, you know, sovereign over all the universe. In fact, Jesus t- put it the other way. He says, if you don't praise me, that's fine. The rocks will cry out. I'll get my glory. I'll get my praise. I will be worshiped. Our work for God, our building monuments to his name, as it were, he doesn't need. He doesn't require. I say this because too often we behave towards God in this way. God, I'll do this for you. I'll give money. I'll go on a mission trip. I'll be nice to my horrible neighbor. I'll do whatever it is if you will do this for me. Or because, God, you are kind and good and you forgive me, therefore I owe you to pay you back. We become barters with God. We try and trade with him. The reality is God doesn't need anything from us. And so let that reality humble you. See yourself rightly. He longs to serve you as his children, not to be paid back as if you were a slave or a debtor. And that takes us to the second reality. You cannot serve God. You can't add anything to his glory. He doesn't need your work for his glory. It takes us to the second reality that God works to bring us to rest. God works to bring us to rest. Here's what God does for David, and here's how the picture of this unfolds for us today. God brings David into rest. He says this in verse 8, uh, the end of, yeah, verse 8. He says, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of the host, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people of Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. God turns the tables here and he says to David through Nathan, look how I've served you, David. Where were you? You were, in the sh- you were in the fields as a shepherd, and I took you, and I made you a king. And, and wherever you've gone, I've protected you. I've kept you from the bear and the lion and Goliath and all your enemies and Saul. I have done all of this for you. I have brought you to rest. And you might think it's at this point where God pauses and goes, okay, David, look at all I've done for you. Now here's what you're going to do for me. But no, God takes it one step further. He, he doubles down on his grace to David. And what he does is he takes the eight covenant he made with Abraham and he applies it all there to David. He says, the name, I will make you a great name. I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will bless you. I will give you this land. You'll be disturbed no more. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Here's where the expectations get all turned upside down. God works as a benefactor to bless David. 
He's the one who brings about the promises that he's made. And he applies them fresh and new to David. God doesn't say to David, David, you know what? Now that I've made you king, okay, you've got to do all this work to bring about my promises, to fulfill them, to to carry and to rescue and deliver Israel. No, God says, no, stop, David. Don't think you can pay me back. Let me bless you all the more and make your name great and bring you to rest. Up until this point, David had only known war, war against Saul, war against the Philistines, war against everybody. But now God says, I'm going to just bless you more and more and more and more. This is the fundamental reality of the gospel, of what God has done for us. God gives and he works. He is the benefactor. He is the giver. And we are to receive. We're to receive his grace and his gift. He is the one who brings us to rest. Jesus Christ came not because we had earned it, not because humanity had become religious enough or enlightened enough or wise enough. Jesus came exactly when we were worse off, the right moment. And he came in spite of us and our sin. And he didn't come to be served. Jesus didn't show up here in the princely pauper and in splendor and glory saying, now serve me. No, he came as a humble servant. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In coming, Jesus laid down his life for us. He, he lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. And, and he stood in our place and died on our behalf to give us rest from our works of trying to earn our way to righteousness, to try and earn our way to God. He died on the cross so that we would stop trying to clean ourselves up but could receive his forgiveness and his cleansing and renewal. You may be striving to prove yourself to God. You may think that by your good deeds, by your works, that finally God will have your attention, that you will will have God's attention, and that he will finally applaud for you and say, okay, good, you've earned it. But you need to hear this morning that Jesus has done all you need to be accepted before God. He's the one who provides you rest, not you working for your rest. You you may be working to make sure that your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, as if the scales of your sin could be balanced. But Jesus came and did the work that you couldn't do. He lived that perfect righteous life to win righteousness for you. He died on the cross to deal with the penalty of your sin. He was raised to life again to give you the hope of eternal life and rest with him. Jesus has done it all, and this is the very heart of God for us. He is the one who gives. He is the one who supplies. He, God, is the one who serves. You say, well, what do I do with that? How do I pay him back? You don't. You come like a child and you receive what he's given to you. You you recognize his grace and his gift, and you stop seeking to repay him, but know with with joy and with gladness, like a kid opening the biggest present they could ever imagine on Christmas morning, you receive and embrace him as the giver with full gladness. That's what faith is, trusting his grace, 
trusting his promises, banking your life, resting on him and all that he is for you. You don't try and pay him back. You don't try and earn it more. You enjoy what he's given. You enjoy him. and You grow in him. So we need to go back to the gospel. God's promises in Christ are to bring us to rest. In fact, this is what Jesus said. Come to me, all you who are weary from your sin, weary from the oppression of the world, weary from the frustration of this life. Come to me, all who are labor, come to me, all who labor are weary and heavy laden. And Jesus doesn't say, and I'll give you 10 more steps to do to get the rest. He says, I will give you rest. Do you believe that? Are you trying to repay God? Trying to add to his glory? The first reality is he doesn't need your work for his glory. The second reality is that God works to bring us to rest. And that takes us to the third reality. How does he do that? How does God work to bring us to rest? He provides a forever king to serve us. It's, it's really nice to think in hypothetical and big, broad, generic terms about God giving us rest. But how does he do that? How has he done that? And here again, we need to see more of God's amazing grace for us. He takes it beyond just giving us rest, but he provides the one who does give us that rest. The forever king who serves us by his grace. It's here in the second part of the story, of the verse, uh, verse 11 of what God is saying to David. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, or the way Steve Jobs would say it, and one more thing, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You get the irony here of what's happened. David says, he looks out his window of his nice luxurious house and he goes, wow, I have a great house. God's house is really a canvas tent. I need to build a house for God. And God stops him in his tracks and says, stop trying to build me a house. Don't build me a house. Let me build you a house. Let me build you a legacy, a dynasty. Let me, let me give to you. I will give you and make you a house. Here's what God promises. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. She'll come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God here begins to unravel something that, that scholars would call prophetic telescoping. He's speaking about how he is going to fulfill things in multiple phases. He speaks first and foremost about David's son, Solomon. Through Solomon, God says, I will establish his house. I, I will establish him as king. And he will build a house for my name, which is exactly what Solomon did. He built the first temple, this glorious place for worship of God. And God says, there I will establish his kingdom forever. So, so David, understand that the son that comes after you, Solomon, his kingdom will be set. And from you, this line is going to go on forever. And God speaks about Solomon, David's son, and he, and he says, I'll be a father to him. He shall be a son to me. When he sins, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But he says, my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. So David, the kingdom is going to rest fully on your family line through Solomon from here on out. I won't pull it back. I won't take it away. And then God says, and oh, there's more coming down the road in the future. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. 
your throne shall be established forever. God is telling David that through his line, a king is going to come who's going to establish and make all things new and all things right. The throne will be established forever. David, your line, through your line, I'm going to establish and to bring a forever king, Messiah, one who will make all things new and right, one who will fulfill all the promises that I've made to, a- to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, to you, to all my people. And Jesus is that forever king. Jesus is the son of David who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is that forever king who came to crush the serpent's head, even though he would take the bite on his heel, to crush Satan, sin, and death in his, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Jesus is the forever king who came to fulfill the promise to Abraham to be a blessing to all nations so that as Jesus was lifted up on the cross, he said, if all men will look to me, they will be saved. As we look to Jesus, he is exalted and lifted up. Jesus is the forever king who's coming to make all things new. He is the one who has fulfilled the law for us and bestows upon us the identity of children of God, his treasured possession, his royal priesthood, holy nation, by his blood, he fulfills the law for us and makes us right with God. Jesus is the forever king who gives us his spirit and makes us new, redeems us from our sin, makes us into his image. Jesus is the forever king who will come again and rescue his people, judge the nations, and rule and reign on the throne forever and ever. Jesus is the forever king who is coming to serve his people. That great reality of giving us rest is all met in Jesus who has come to serve us. And so we ask the question, what does that say about God? What does that say about his promises? It shows us that his promises for us are good and he is committed to doing good for us and redeeming us, making us new. It's the lavish gift of himself upon our greatest longings. Brothers and sisters, you can't serve God. You can't repay him. You can't work your way back to his grace. But you can see one. You can see Christ who's come to give us rest as a king inverts the way the world's kingdoms work and serves us, his people. And so how do we respond to God? How do we receive what he has done for us? Well, not trying to pay him back, but through our lives of love, gratitude, hope, Worship and joy. Like children on Christmas morning, we embrace the giver. And we say to God, may glory be to your name. May love in our hearts abound and rise up. May our affections increase for all that he has done for us. If you see anything today, I pray that you would see Jesus and all that he is for you and all that he has come to do to serve you, to bless you, 
to pour out his grace on you so that you would love him more and more and not try and earn something from him, but that you would come with open hands and receive all the love, forgiveness, joy, and goodness that he has for you. What do you give to someone who has everything? You just give him yourself. You give him you because he's paid for you, he's purchased you, and he loves you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your son. We thank you for your promises to us and how you have kept every one of those promises in Christ. We thank you that he is our forever king who by his service of us, by his service of us, he has reconciled us to you. He's made us your own. He's poured out your love upon us. We thank you for Christ. Oh Lord, may we give ourselves to you not to earn anything from you, not to pay you back, but because you, the giver, have given yourself fully to us. Lord, thank you for your grace. We love you. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.